If you have your Bibles, let's take them out and open them to this passage that Kevin read to us this morning. And we continue our study through Mark's account of the life and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are, as the side screens continually remind us, and I want to remind you, following the servant king. And we're following y'all not so that we know more about Jesus. We're following that his life would literally redefine our own. And I trust that'll happen today. We've come in our study, as you just heard, to what many would call one of the hardest of the hard sayings of Jesus. It has tripped up people uh, for centuries, um, troubled followers of Christ, and I would venture to say continues to trouble at least uh, some of us to this day. G. Campbell Morgan wrote of these words, quote, no more solemn and awful words ever fell from the lips of Jesus, end quote. And so in this text uh, today, we come, I, th I hope, with a, a measure of fear and trembling, honestly. Uh, but we also come with great hope, y'all. Let's not forget that as awful and, and hard, sobering as the words of Christ are literally to us, let's not forget that what he says to us is for our good and his glory. And ultimately, y'all, it's not just about, you know, I'm going to tell you these hard words, but hang on because one day you'll be with me forever. No, it's I'm telling you these hard words so that you can live life now amidst your hopes and struggles in a way that reflects how you'll be living forever with me. And this is our great hope, even in these challenging words. Um, the context, uh, of course, is going to help us when we uh, begin to interpret this. And so let me reach back and, and remind you, um, verses 7 through 19 that Eric covered last week, uh, Jesus is addressing eternal things. That's going to come up here in a moment. And it's, as Eric said, uh, you know, Jesus chose those men. It wasn't about, here's some sharp guys, you know, we've been through a bunch of interviews, we've tested them, they're qualified, you made the cut. I mean, you know, he's not a headhunter. Uh, he's the Lord Jesus, and he calls, and we'll see as we go through this, he sends them out. Now, I want you to notice that uh, he ends with a bit of a dour note. So look in your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 19, and it ends with that last name, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You see the little storm cloud right there? It's like, it's like Marcus put a storm cloud on the horizon. You all, this storm cloud is just going to rise, just like those cumulus thunderheads, rise, rise, rise until we get to Jerusalem and the Lord's crucifixion. Our text is one of the first of several Markan sandwiches that, that we're going to study. And every time I think of that, I think of Vegemite sandwich, you know, with the, with the song. But it's a, it's a sandwich. And I, I literally want to show you on the board why we would call this a Markan sandwich. Um, it's a literary technique. It, 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 we could consider it bracketing, but we give it this sandwich term. And I... This will really matter when we begin to unpack what's hard about these things. So just everybody kind of keep an eye up here with me for a moment, and uh, I'm going to draw a sandwich. So uh, we start with the, the top slice of bread, okay? And that's verses 20 to 21. And in that passage, verses 20 to 21, we notice that uh, there are his people 
who are coming to get him. Okay, that's just what it's, verses 20 to 21. And so we say, okay, his people are coming to get him. More on that in a moment. And then we go, well, well, who are his people? We don't know. Just stay in the text itself as it's going. You read that and you go, well, we don't know who his people are. And then we get this next big section, right, by the way. And this is going to be all the bacon, lettuce, and tomato, you know, in the middle of the sandwich. And we'll just say here, he's speaking of this story about the scribes. Does everybody see that? So you get the top slice and then you get the scribes. And we're going to unpack that in a moment. Now, he wraps up the story, interestingly, by coming back to the bottom slice of the sandwich. And now I want you to look at the text. And according to this is going to be, uh, by the way, 22 to 30, and then 31 to 35. I want you to look at uh, 31 to 35, and you tell me who are his people. Who are they? According to the text, who are his people? Say it. His family, you see, but you don't know that at the beginning. So now we go, oh, okay, his people are family. That's who his people are. Now, you look up here and you go, so what? (laughs) You can draw a sandwich. Uh, uh, That's cute. What does it mean? And of course, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? So why did Mark arrange this particular story in this particular way. And it's, he's going to do it several times through our study. We're going to find that out because we're going to take the sandwich apart, slice by slice, and then we're going to put it back together and we will see. Let's start with the top slice, okay? The text has been read. I'll read a piece of it here in a moment. But we note in 20 and 21, top slice, that Jesus has come back to Capernaum. It's not his house. It's probably Peter's home. And you recall that in chapter 2, they were there in Capernaum and uh, they were at a house and it was so full, do you remember this, that they couldn't get the paralytic in, the friends, and so what did they do? Remember, they took the tile off the roof to drop their friend in because the house was so packed. We're probably at the same house and it's even more full. Why? Because the popularity of Jesus is spreading, you see. And, and they're so busy, this is interesting, we could unpack a lot of this and you might just reflect on it, but they're so busy in their work and ministry that they don't even have enough time to eat. Now, this is a bit of conjecture, but I, I would consider it sanctified in regards to the text. Um, it could be that Mary has, has heard all about what Jesus is doing. Now, he's 30 years old, but still, moms, I know you feel this way. And, uh, you know, he's riling up the religious establishment. He's doing some things that she knows is going to cause him trouble. And then she hears he's not even eating. And that may be the thing that took her over. <laughs> my, my boy's not eating. Let's go get him. I'm going to feed him and get him some rest, etc. And then so they set out to get him. Now, it says they came to take custody. Uh, I want you to know that Greek word, take custody, is used later, translated, when they came to arrest him. See, so the idea is not, let's go see if he wants to come home for a little rest. Uh, No, you know, we just sang the song, it's used in this way, when death was arrested, 
my life began. It's to take control. It's to, oh, you see what I'm saying? This is not a, just a friendly invitation. Let's see if he'll come. And he lost his senses. It's a good translation of the Greek because it literally means to be outside of oneself. What do we say about people when they're doing stuff that's crazy? I mean, you're, you're, look, you're, you're, you are out of your... See, that's the idea. And that's exactly what they thought about their brother and their son. Now, this is just an observation, and I'm going to let you make the applications for yourself, but I actually am greatly encouraged by this. Jesus had a dysfunctional family, didn't he? I mean, he disappointed his mom. Uh, his brothers didn't believe in him. You know, ever, anybody have family, siblings? You don't get along with your siblings, or you, your siblings don't get each other? I mean, come on. Well, that was true of Jesus, and when the Bible tells us that fully human means fully human, we know we have a priest that identifies with everything, you all, that we can go through. Well, their actions, by the way, are darker than they seem. We'll get to that in a minute. That's the top slice, okay? There's the top slice of bread. Let's take the middle section, this section on the scribes, okay? I won't reread it, but I'll summarize it for you. A delegation is sent from Jerusalem, so headquarters sends out a delegation, legal experts in the law. Let's go check this out. And there, many would say they're going down there to see if uh, Capernaum's what they, they would call a seduced city. In other words, has Capernaum been so taken in by this new teacher on the scene that it's, it's seduced? It's, in a sense, excuse me, apostate. Uh, we need to keep this in mind, though. Two things, okay? They can't refute that Jesus has exercised demons. Y'all, th- this is common in that day, but people weren't always successful when they tried to ex- uh, exercise demons. You remember the sons of Sceva? It's a rather humorous story. Tried to exercise the demons. Demons come out and say, who are you? And then just tear their clothes off and all that. Not with Jesus. Jesus just says a word. He's batting a thousand. The demons come out. It's, it's, it's totally different. They can't deny that he's doing that. But I want you to note, secondly, something about the scribes. And it's in chapter 3, verse 6. Look back in your Bible. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him. This is a key phrase. As to how they might destroy him. Men and women, please note as we move from here all the way through this story, some minds have been made up. Yes, they're coming down to see what Jesus is doing, but their minds have been made up. And this is really, really important as we interpret the hard saying itself. By this time, historically, the Jews used the name Beelzebul, uh, to identify the leader of the demons. So, so we could say, you know, when they said, you know, he's, he's, he's in cahoots with Beelzebul, everyone knows he's in cahoots with Satan, with the leader. And so, in fact, Jesus is casting demons out, calling demons out of people because he's got a demon himself. And so they're in cahoots in doing this. And then Jesus begins to speak in parables. I'm not going to unpack parable per se because we're going to look at some of those in the next two weeks. But... The parables designed not just to communicate truth, but to hide truth in a sense. But I want to tell you, there are, I don't know that there are any parables more easily understood, so to speak, than the ones he says here as he begins to refute what they are claiming. He talks about a kingdom divided, a house divided, right? And then Satan himself divided. Okay, let's, let's just look at those three real quick. 
Um, a kingdom divided. If a kingdom's divided, it's not going to be a kingdom for very long. We, we just so get that. It's like, Lloyd, help me understand that. Well, I really don't have to. We understand it. It's like ISIS is sending suicide bombers to ISIS. Well, ISIS won't be around long then, right? Everybody not, you with me? That's so simple. Same way with a house divided. If a family's divided and fighting against within, we would say, you know, that there's not going to be much of a legacy to that family. We totally get that. And then he just goes straight to the source and says, Satan himself, if he's fighting against himself, then he's actually finished. He's done. But if you were to look around Capernaum and note the oppression and the poverty and the disease and the death, would you look around and go, wow, Satan's getting weaker and weaker? No, you wouldn't, right? And then Jesus tells them what's truly happening. And that's this little statement in verse 27. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Let me, let me give you the, like the uh, program for this play that we just watched here in verse 27. Um, the strong man is... Satan, okay? So here are the characters in the story. The strong man is Satan. His house is uh, this world. What does 1 John say? That he's, he's the ruler of this world temporarily. 2 Corinthians says the God of this world. So, so that Satan is the strong man. His house is this world. And in particular, in this context, we say his house are, are people he possesses because he goes in and now it's his right? You see, and, it, and it's his so that he can destroy them, quite frankly, in bondage. So Jesus tells this story, and now we go, okay, so only someone stronger than the strong man could plunder his house. So let me ask you, who's the one who's stronger than the strong man in this story? Tell me. It's, it's Jesus. It's God, okay? So Jesus says, I, I, I've bound the strong man. I think that probably references the temptation that he uh, overcame Satan in that temptation. So he's, he's bound. And now Jesus says, he's bound. So I am literally coming and I am taking his stuff. Well, what's his stuff? The souls of men. So this man's possessed and Jesus says the word and the demon comes out and he's set free like we just sang from his bondage. Does everything, all this make sense? See, when you go through this, I think we could say, if you were an atheist, if, 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 if you don't know Christ and you said, well, this, this is the arguments they make, we'd go, well, Jesus just takes it apart really clearly. I mean, it, that didn't take a whole lot of explanation to understand. Now, and again, just an aside, you know, people who are skeptical of the faith or of Christianity, I'm not an apologist, so I don't even have an example of this, but they still today bring arguments against God that honestly, I'm not saying they're not, some of them aren't, aren't good, but there's a lot of them that are just not logical at all, just like this. And all I'm going to say to you is don't take someone's argument at face value. Take it apart. And you'll find there are parts of these arguments, honestly, that are like, wait a minute. I mean, a kingdom divided is not going to be a kingdom. A house divided is not going to be a house. It's, it's that illogical. And then we come to verse 28. So brace yourself on this one. 28 to 31. Truly, I say to you, it's Jesus saying, Amen. I mean, it's the Hebrew word that says, uh, this is really true. You know, it's even like when we say amen, we're saying, amen, brother. Yes, that's true what you're saying. This is what he's saying. It's the first time he uses it in Mark. This is a weighty statement 
that I'm getting ready to say, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. When I was 17 years old, uh, I, I had not placed my faith in Christ. I had not come to that place where I trusted that Jesus lived the life I couldn't live, a perfect life, that he died the death I deserve because of my sin, that he was buried and raised again. I had not trusted that for myself and believed it. I'm not a, I'm not a Christian. But my brother had gone away to uh, MTSU just down the road, and he had become a Christian through a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Many of you know it as Crew now. And then he would be home with me, you know, with us during the summers. My brother's 18 months older than me. And I remember turning to him at one point and saying, well, at least I don't think I'm blankety blank Jesus walking around blankety blank acting like you're Mr. Clean and innocent and righteous and blankety blank. We, we were in my, our blue Volkswagen Beetle on Peachers Mill Road in Clarksville, Tennessee, just about to cross some railroad tracks. It was 39 years ago, but I remember that when I did that because for years after that, there would be moments I would think I committed the unpardonable sin. I mean, I cussed my brother as a Christian. Now, I, I'm, I'm saying that, and I want to deal a death blow to this today, and so I'll ask you to do this. This is not true for everyone. I think a lot of it has to do with temperament, maybe. But has anyone else ever wondered, questioned, just pondered, maybe I committed the unpardonable sin, or you think, I might do it before I die? I literally want you to raise your hand. I mean, I'm raising mine. Has anybody else, a few of us, some of us, yeah, I, I have. And you may continue to do so today, and I wanted you to raise your hand because I want you, in a sense, to, to go, I, I do struggle with this, and get your body involved because I think there's truth here that be of great encouragement to us. Blasphemy is to say something about God that's not true of God. It's to slander God. How many of you have ever blasphemed? See, now, if you're not raising your hand, you're probably lying. I'm being serious, truthfully. Are you kidding me that we've never said something about God that's not true of God? I mean, we all have. Not all, but most of us, I would say. We want to understand this unpardonable sin. Uh, let's understand first what it's not. It wasn't me cursing my brother about being a Christian, as grievous as that certainly could be. It's not using the Lord's name in vain. I mean... I've done that a lot. It's not saying something about Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit that's not true. It's not what it is. It's, it's not murder, adultery, homosexuality, lying, stealing, cheating, sexual perversion, or any type of, of, of immorality. It's not what, what he's talking about here. If you take the Apostle Paul, couldn't we say, I don't, I don't know exactly if I'd say he blasphemed the Holy Spirit, but man, he had to come close. I mean, what, you know, if, he, if he didn't say something against the Holy Spirit, surely he acted against the Holy Spirit. How about this? Have you killed multiple people because he was a mass murderer? How about Peter who denied Jesus with cursing? And he had been with Jesus for three years physically in his presence. Um, the unpardonable sins, not the worst sin you can imagine. Um, you think Hitler committed the unpardonable sin? I mean, think about the grotesqueness of all of that. 
It's not the worst sin you can imagine or you could imagine you may commit. Y'all, it's not even dying in unbelief. Now, in one way it, it is, but it's not what this is because let me say this to you. If, you never, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, then, and if you die, you see, uh, you, you have unforgiven sin and you will pay the penalty yourself because you chose in life not to trust that Jesus paid it for you. So in a sense, your sins are, are unforgiven and they'll be unforgiven for eternity separate from God and bearing the wrath of God forever. But that's not what he's talking about here. To understand what Jesus meant here, and I'm gonna qualify this because there are different views, but I'm gonna give you mine. Um, Jesus, we gotta understand the historical context. Jesus was physically on the ground in Israel offering the kingdom of God. <clears throat> the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders who knew the law, therefore who should have been most aware that what he was doing chose instead to attribute what Jesus was doing to the devil. Do you see that? Do you see the historical context that we're in? And they didn't do it one time. It's not like this is the only time they did it because verse 30 says they kept on, the tense of the verb, they kept on, they kept on, they just kept on, they just kept on and kept on, you see. So, this gets back to what I said about chapter three, verse six. They had a fixed mind. They had made up their mind. It was, it was not going to change. You're of the devil. They see that it was a fixed mindset for them. And therefore, I'll say this twice so you can get this. Note, well, let me say as well, he didn't, Jesus didn't say you have committed it. He knows they're very close to it. And in fact, they will. But he didn't say you did it, right? He describes it, but note this. The unpardonable sin was the rejection, rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the religious leaders of Israel. A sin they would not and could not recover from. I'll say it again. The unpardonable sin was the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the religious leaders or the religious establishment, a sin they would not, could not recover from. Now, if indeed this is what the unpardonable sin is, let's just say this. Um, if you think you've committed it, you haven't because you, you can't. See, you had to been there to commit it. Uh, if you live with this subtle fear that, man, one day right before I die, I may say, I may say those words, Jesus, you did that and it's of the devil. It may come out of my mouth, you know, some weird thing go on. But you can't because you would have had to been there. Don't take my word for it, but I would, I, I would trust at some level um, scholars much wiser than I. Charles Ryrie is probably one of, our, one of our sharpest theologians of our generation. He's since passed, but he, and he summarizes this without me going to big arguments. Uh, but others hold this position as well. Quote, speaking against the Holy Spirit was not merely a sin of the tongue. The scribes had sinned, had not sinned only with their words. It was a sin of the heart expressed in words. Furthermore, theirs was a sin committed to Jesus's face. To commit this particular sin required the personal and visible presence of Christ on earth to commit it today, therefore would be impossible, end quote. Okay, now, Everyone in the room is not going to hold this view, even as all biblical scholars don't hold the view. There are some who hold the view uh, with reason. I think this best fits the context itself and the historical setting, but there are some who hold the view that, you know, the unpardonable sins to, to attribute to Jesus 
to say what Jesus is doing is of the, uh, of the devil. And, and I would say, well, if you're doing that on your deathbed, then you're going to die apart from, from, from Christ, certainly. So there are others that say you could commit it today, okay? Now, you've got to decide where you land on that. I, I would suggest you can't. Now, here's what we all agree on, though, and I hope this gives you some measure of hope. That whether you believe it can be committed today or if you believe it can't, what we agree is if you're concerned about it, you haven't done it. If you're even worried you will, you won't because this was unquestionably a sin in which minds made up and the thought of sorrow, repentance never crosses the mind, you see. Does that make sense? So if you're even worried about it, you haven't, you see. And if you're breathing right now, I don't care what you've done, there's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ when you turn and trust him. One last word on this, just by way of um, you know, textual or, or, or even redemptive history um, evidence. We'll note in our New Testaments that the proclamation of the gospel is always universal. That it's anyone... All who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon his name will be saved. That, that you never, it's a bit facetious, but you're never going to find any proclamation of the gospel that comes out. Look, anyone, unless you've committed the unpardonable sin, I'm sorry about that, but anyone else who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. You see, there's never that. It's for all who believe. Okay, now here's my view of this. I don't believe that's the hard saying. <laughs> now, we, it is hard, but I think what's harder is what he says next. 31, his mother and his brothers arrived standing. Note the, note the contrast here. <sighs> standing outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who were sitting Around him, inside, right? He said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's outside people and there's inside people. Just this contrast that he brings us as you go through that text. And I think this is the hardest one because we, we, I don't believe, we never hear about the unpardonable sin again. But I'm going to tell you something. What Jesus says about family is always hard. It's like, you know, Jesus doesn't give us a lot of, you know, here's a family seminar. Here's how to be married. And this, by the way, is how you want to raise your kids. What does Jesus say about family? Hate your mom and dad. Thank you, Jesus. Um, you, you leave mom and dad. Thank you, Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about. See what I'm saying? You talk about hard. And that's what he's introducing even here. Outside and inside. Well, who's that? Who's, let me go back to this. Who's on the, who's, who's outside the, the house here? Don't, don't miss the imagery, which is why I even do this. Who's outside? His family's outside. Who's inside? Now, it's not the scribes per se who are inside, although they're certainly near, but he says he looks at those who are around him and he's just chosen 12, just got them. I mean, it's kind of like, 
It's kind of like your kids. You know how your kids treat their friends better than they treat you as mom and dad? I raised you for 18 years, and now you treat them better than you've known them for three months, per se. But who's inside? Well, we know there's a tax collector. That's pretty despicable. There's some fishermen. There's some guys he's just you know, brought on board, per se. But outside and then inside are... For the family, you know, it's kind of like it doesn't, that doesn't make sense that that's going to be who your family is. And let's think about their motives. Now, I'm reading between the lines here, but I've got to believe just from a human standpoint, do we believe that Mary and the brothers' motives were good? Let's just use Mary because we don't know about brothers because I've got a brother. (laughs) They're not always good motives, right? That's part of the conflict we have as siblings. Mary's motive's good, probably. She wants the, does she want the best for her son? Okay. How about the scribes? Do they, what do you think of their motives? Do you think they want the best for Jesus? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and I think, and there's different ways these, these sandwiches help us understand things. But in this context, I think it tells us Uh, The reason that Mark put it this way and organized the story this way is to say that the point of both stories is the same. Well, what what do you mean that the the point of both stories about his family and the scribe? What do you mean that the point's the same? Well, let me say it this way. When it comes to what matters most, And I I, I don't know, you can argue with this, that what matters most to Jesus in this is who's in spiritual relationship with me. That's the most important thing, right, that we see in the back end of this story. So when it comes to what matters most, being in relationship with Christ, I think he's showing us that blood is no better off than religion. That that being his brother makes you no closer to him than a scribe who's trying to destroy him. Do you see that? That I don't care if he came out of your womb, Mary, and nursed at your breast. You're not in relationship with him that matters. Oh, you're blood related. But that's not the most important thing. Mary is no closer to Christ. You understand what I'm saying in this? Than the scribes. that's a tough bite of sandwich. That's hard to swallow. But it's true. He wants us to see, and I'm going to say these two things, and I'm going to have two applications. That both family and foe, watch this, two things, were seeking to derail him. (laughs) So anyway, wait a minute. Mary's not, oh yes, Both family and foe are seeking to derail him from his mission. And both family and foe are missing the most important thing in life, and that is to be in relationship with Christ by faith. By faith. Let me take those two things and have us consider them in terms of principle application. First one is this. Now, I take this from Mary and the boys, okay? May we beware of the ways that we seek to derail the mission of Christ in our life and the lives of others, even with good intentions. May we beware ways that we we are actually seeking to derail the work of Christ in our own life and the lives of others, 
even when we have good intentions. We got to be careful that, that we don't get in the, the mindset that we know what Jesus should be doing. I mean, come on, you ought to be eating. Uh, you, you really shouldn't put yourself out there so far with these religious leaders because they're going to kill you. <laughs> you, know, you see, we got to be careful that we don't try and determine what, what we think Jesus ought to be doing or what's best for him. Men and women, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing then and he does now, globally, locally, individually. There are things in my life and yours that I wish he weren't doing. There are. That I wish he hadn't done. And I, I don't know what he's going to do now. As we, and I want to sit him down and have a word with him. You know, you know just, this is really not what we have planned here. You know, so... But it's interesting in the text itself, you know, all the way up to this point, who does the calling and who does the responding? Jesus calls, we respond. And notice in the text, what did those mom and, dad, mom and brothers do? Literally in the text, it says, they called him. No, 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 you don't call him. You know, this is probably the first, uh, maybe the last family intervention they ever had, <laughs> right? And it's a facetious reminder, you don't, you don't do family interventions with Jesus, because Jesus is right and, and we're not, per se. We need to beware that Jesus does the calling, we do the following, even when, especially when, it just, it's like it doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense, Jesus. And even especially then, I would say, we follow. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it'll be those closest to you that are actually trying to trip you up a bit. Family holding you back, right? Which takes us to the second lesson or application. I'll, write, I'll say it like this. May we never forget that our heavenly family is more important than our earthly family. Now you talk about a hard saying. May we never forget that our heavenly family is more important than our earthly family. Clearly Mark's point in inserting this story, helping us to understand that the most important thing is to do the will of God, to do the will of God first and foremost. This is do not pass go, do not collect $200. You can't go anywhere else on the board until you pass go, and passing go is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to do the will of God first and foremost, to place your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you don't you don't get in relationship with Jesus by being his brother, blood. You don't get in relationship with Jesus by obeying the law meticulously. You're in relationship with Jesus by faith, bowing your knee and trusting that what he did, he did for you. Now, this is not to say, I want to be careful, and I, I hope you won't misunderstand or misquote me on this, but... When I say that, you know, it's not that we don't honor mom and dad. Y'all, absolutely. You know, Jesus honored his mother on the cross itself, making sure she was cared for, didn't, didn't he? Paul's going to say, if you don't, one of the apostles say, if you don't take care of your family, dads, if you're not providing for your family, you're no good. I mean, family, you know, uh, really matters. But God's family matters most. I think most of us, can look, I'll do it this way. Most of us can look back at our family, per se, and go, you know, my spiritual family matters more, mom and dad. You know, we look back at our family, per se, and, and, and we, we sort of get that as we're, we're adults. Uh, I know I did maybe when I, when I got a little bit older. I still want to honor my mom and dad, et cetera, but, but the spiritual family is what matters most. 
I think what gets hard, and I'm just going to say for those in the room who are parents, and I am, and I turn this way, and I'm married. I have Lisa, Darden, Susan, and Sally. Uh, some of us, when we look back, we look back and we go, I didn't even have a family. So I'm thankful for my heavenly family. Some of us look back and go, that was terrible. That was harmful. That family harmed me. Thank goodness I have a heavenly family. Okay? So we look back with, with relief or gratitude when we turn from this family. But when we turn to this family, I don't know about you, but I look at this family and I go, it's harder for me to say that the heavenly family matters more than y'all. That's harder, isn't it? That's what he's saying, though. Not that we desert our family. Not that you do... I'm going I'm to leave my family and go to China and win people to Christ. Y'all, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. That's so unbiblical, per se. No, I would say this. Until you yourself are in relationship with God through Christ, then you don't even know how to lead your family yet, truly. But when you are in relationship with Christ, then you will absolutely love and honor and adore your earthly family, which is why a huge commitment for us strategically at Fellowship Franklin is what? Family, you see, because it's right. But when in relationship with God, it's right, then we actually can hold that family with our hands open and recognize this family really matters, but there is the heavenly family that matters more and most. Why is Jesus elevating the heavenly family above our earthly family? Because only one family lasts forever. And it's not Lisa, Darden, Susan, and Sally. That makes me so sad. Until I just go, but God, you wouldn't make that so that it's total sadness. You're making it such that when they know you, we will be together forever. But you know, marriage doesn't last forever, people. And neither does earthly family, per se. Just the heavenly family. Man, those are hard, hard words. So what? What do we do with those words? Well, we keep our focus on what really matters. I could describe it, I could say words about it, but you know what? Pictures truly say more than the words could ever say. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is look at the side screens and let's be reminded of this in a very visual, tangible, symbolic reminder of the family that matters most and that ordinance that Jesus gave us to remind us visibly, emotionally, heart-wise that this is the family that matters most, faith in Christ and being with God forever. Let's take a look at this. I never tire of watching people come out of those waters. Lest we be confused at all, you understand being baptized doesn't save you. See, everyone who's baptized was saved, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. When? Well, some adults, when they were younger, some when they were later, some of these kids a year ago, months ago. See, in the moment you trust Christ, and believe you're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Then a step of a disciple who follows the servant king is, I'm going to tell the world, I want everyone to know that God has saved me and this is what we do in baptism. What a beautiful picture. When I baptize people, whether adult or child, and the, the children kind of get, get it, it hits them harder than it does the adult, but I'll look at a little girl or a little boy and I'll say, you know, did you know that I'm your brother you know, I'm your brother in Christ because now we're family. 
This is for, this, we talk about forever family and adopt. This is forever family. I'm your family. This is the decision that matters most. And I'll say to you, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, uh, there's no greater, more important decision you'll ever, ever, ever make. That's why we're here. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray over you, with you, and then send you out. And uh, I will invite you, would you bow your heads? And if you have never trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that what he did, he did for you, you can right now. It's not the prayer that saves you. It is the attitude of your heart. But you may, in your mind, say this, or you may whisper it to yourself, but it's simply to believe and say from the heart, Lord Jesus, I'm turning to you from my own way. And I believe that you lived the life I couldn't, a perfect life. You died the death I deserve because my sin earned death. So you took my place, you died, were buried, and rose again. And you did it for me. I believe it. I trust it. I will rest in it. In this moment, you see, when we believe, we are in the family of God and we are related to Jesus in the way that matters most. We're related to him by faith in him. Oh, Lord, may we live in such a way that the world would look at us and the way we live as families because we are in your family catch their attention that they might come to know you. Would you take these hard sayings Help us to trust them, that in them is life. It's life's in you. Amen. And God bless.